Good morning. My name is Spencer Bros, and I'm the senior pastor, the lead pastor here at St. Stephen's Church. And it is a blessing to be here with you today as we gather in the name of Jesus Christ as we worship the one true God. This morning, we follow up on last week's sermon. Uh, last week, we were in the first few verses of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, in the first one, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 9. This week, we follow up with that and look at verses 10 through 18. And this is Paul speaking to the church. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be not united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, bright brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know where, whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, the word of God, for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today our church celebrates with the ministry known as United Women in Faith. The ministry used to be known by a different name not that long ago, which I still find myself reverting back to from time to time, which is why I'm reading this part straight out of my text. <laughs> but the more I consider the change, the more I warm to it. Instead of identifying as United Methodist Women, which simply points to the denomination that we are a part of, it's now a description of what brings them together beyond an institution faith. Women who are united in faith. Now, you, you may not know of its beginnings. I didn't, I, I'm always learning something new, and, um, and I thought I would share with you uh, what I have recently learned about the beginnings of what we now call the United uh, Women in Faith. In 1969, Clement, Clementina Butler and Lois Parker, who were wives of missionaries in India at the time, made a plea to a group of eight women in Boston about the spiritual and the physical needs of the poor women in India. They could not be treated by male doctors because of their gender. Schooling for girls was almost non-existent, and help was desperately needed. And what would become a lasting legacy, the attendees were moved to action. They quickly called another meeting of more women, they wrote a constitution. Not long after that, they organized the Methodist Woman's Foreign Missionary Society, its first name of many to come. By November of 1869, the newly formed organization raised enough money and sent an educator, Isabella Thoburn, and a medical doctor, uh, Dr. Clara Swain, to India. Ms. Thoburn began a school with just six young girls. 
And that went on to become the Isabella Thoborn College, Asia's first women's college. Dr. Swain's medical work resulted in the first women's hospital in Asia, and both institutions continue to serve people of India even today. Across continents over many generations, under a number of different names, this ministry of women united by their faith, facing the challenges around them, continues to this day. And it was begun by a handful of women seeing a need and gathering people together to address it. Gathering people from its very beginning has been the way in which the church has formed disciples of Jesus Christ united in faith for service in the world. Just as in this letter, in each of Paul's letters, he points to the necessity of people gathered as one in faith in the person of Jesus Christ for the good news to be spread. And everywhere that the gospel was spread, another way of saying good news, the world was changed for the better. Orphans were rescued, widows are cared for, the poor are fed and clothed. They gathered, they grew in faith, and they served those in need around them following the way of their Savior. As we looked at last week in the very first few, in the first few verses of this letter to the church in Corinth, beyond a greeting and gratitude, Paul laid out a general message of vocation and provision, of calling, calling a group, the people of God, to a purpose, and then of God's equipping them to fulfill that purpose in the world. And from there, Paul goes on this long journey of recentering the life of the Corinthian church around the person of Jesus Christ. Not Apollos, not Cephas, not Paul, but Jesus. So he begins that trip talking about disunity in the church. I don't know about you, but I find that to be both sad and a little comforting. The very early church, first century, was already dealing with disunity and conflict. It's nothing new to modern-day church, not even to the times of uh, uh, when the Protestant church came into being. <laughs> In the first century, somewhere around 55 A.D., Jesus had only ascended to the right hand of God about 20 years beforehand. 20 to 25 years beforehand. This is to me, if you're looking for the perfect community within a church, you'll be looking for a long time. Churches have been places where imperfect people have gathered in the name of the only perfect person, Jesus, from the very beginning. As the saying goes, the church is not a museum for the saints, but a hospital for sinners. We strive to do it right, but our fallen nature keeps getting in the way. And just like the church in Corinth needs Jesus, so do we. So let's take a look at what Paul is talking about in terms of unity. What does that mean to him? He doesn't get specific about what unity looks like until later in the letter. He's got other things to say, other things to get straight within the community of, the, of Corinth. He gives them a model, however, for unity as God's holy 
uh, people, saints of the church of God, as he calls them in the early part of that letter, and, or you might say, else, uh, as I said last week, the called out, set apart people of God. When we get to chapter 12 in this letter, Paul drops some seriously equalizing yet differentiating imagery. He makes sure that they know that they are different, but with a purpose and for the greater good. At the same time as saying that the difference is one isn't better than the other. When our modern ear hears the word unity, we have to work to not equate it with uniformity, as Pastor Muni demonstrated with the colors of our favorite colors with the straws. While we would never presume to think that the church is meant to be made up of the same people, or the same ethnic group, same socioeconomic place, or education level, or on and on and on, we start to think that we all have to agree on intellectual things. But Paul points not to intellectual beliefs. He points to a person and says to be perfectly united in mind and thought. And while that sounds like the same uh, intellectual things and ideas, Paul is referring to what he calls something, what he re referring to something that he points to in chapter 12. When Paul talks about the unified nature of the church, he uses the image of the human body. And not just any body. Whose body? Jesus' body. It's not just a body, it's the body of Christ. And in other letters, he'll go on to remind them that in that body, only one person is the head, where thoughts and the mind reside, and that's Jesus. Our thoughts, our mind, is directly connected to him. We come under the, the leadership of Christ as we join the body of Christ. Paul's encouraging them to be united in the person of Jesus so that we might be reconciled with God. Or in other words, so that the barrier that was created by sin that exists between every human being and exists between every human being and God is destroyed. And that allows us to return to a connectedness with God that we cannot know or enjoy when that barrier remains. And in doing so, despite our continued differences with God, the distance between us has been removed and we can enjoy a relationship with him. And then that models for us how we can be together despite our dis differences with one another. We can enjoy relationship with one another when we remove that distance between us. It's been the trait of the Christian community since its beginning. And I believe the evil one's greatest trick is to diminish the effectiveness of the church by convincing us that if we can't agree on everything, that we can't be in community together. So what does that look like for us? What does that unity look like for us here at 9203 Braddock Road? That's the address of the church, in case you don't know. You just show up. You know, you maybe put it in your GPS, and it gets you here. What does unity look like here at St. Stephen's Church? In my experience, we build unity when we put our hands and feet to work for God. When we're teaching the next generation or new believers or even longtime followers about the life of Christ, when we reach out beyond our church grounds extending the love of Christ, when we serve those in need in our community in the name of Christ, worshiping together, whether in person or in line with the presence of Christ, spreading the good news, 
sharing the grace of Christ, then we are united around the person. We may even disagree about what that means and what those things look like, but as we do them for Jesus, we are still united in Christ. Well, it would be easy to say that this sermon was meant to address one of maybe a dozen specific issues, conflicts that are a part of the 21st century church. It's not. I think that's too limiting. Churches often are more inclined to be in conflict over much smaller things. And I'll just say it. I'm, I don't have anything specifically in mind here at St. Stephen's when I'm saying this. This is a church, this is a millennial long throughout the entire Christendom thing. I'm drawing from more than 25 years of professional ministry experience and another 20 years of view from the pew. I'm talking about conflicts over the color of the carpet, what kind of seating we use, whether it's a new space or a a space that's being remodeled, the font in the bulletin. Should we replace fill-in-the-blank? Types of music or instruments that are part of our worship service and on and on and on. Some of them are, are small. Some of them become big. But the question remains, does this help or hinder us from making disciples of Jesus Christ? That's the central question. And when we focus on the person of Christ and making disciples of him, it puts everything else into perspective. It doesn't solve every conflict, but it helps to put them into perspective. And then when we see the, the purpose behind it as we are making disciples of Jesus Christ, as we put the full body of Christ to work behind it, around making disciples whose transformed lives lead to a transformed world, that's the type of unity I yearn for in the church. And what I believe that we can all live with for the good of the kingdom of God, and for the good of the world. Amen.